If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 28, verse 18. Again, that's Matthew 28, verse 18. In this passage, we find the very last words that Jesus utters to His disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been crucified, and He is raised from the dead, and His disciples have gathered to this mountain in Galilee, as He has directed. And at the conclusion of this Gospel, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thus Jesus delivered the instructions that we now know as the Great Commission. There are few passages in Scripture that are as monumental as this one. After all, with these words, Jesus issued His marching orders for the disciples. God's Messianic King, the one who had been sent to baptize His people with the Holy Spirit and the earth with fire, the one who had been sent to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. This King had been crucified, but now He is raised from the dead and He has received all authority both in heaven and on earth. In other words, he now possesses everything needed to complete the mission that he was sent by God to accomplish, which is the restoration of all things. The kingdom of heaven, in this sense, is truly at hand. It's eminently near. And what does he tell his disciples to do in light of this fact? What does he instruct them to do now that this authority has been received? He tells them to go and preach. He tells them to go and proclaim What has happened? He tells them to go and tell the world that He is God's King, that He is raised from the dead, that the kingdom of heaven is now at hand, and to repent and believe in the gospel. Essentially, Jesus tells His disciples to go out and advance the kingdom of heaven. They are to go out into the world as His royal ambassadors, as diplomats of the kingdom of heaven, and declare to all peoples how they can be reconciled to God through faith in His Son, Jesus Jesus Christ. This is what they must do now that Jesus is raised. That is their mission. And this is the mission, not just for these 11 disciples, but for all of Jesus' disciples as well. If you believe in Christ, this is your mission. As we saw last week in places like 2 Corinthians 5.15 and and Titus 2.14, Jesus died for your sins so that being reconciled to God, you might serve Him in adoration and worship. That's true of all of Jesus' disciples. All of you have been saved to serve and worship Jesus. And the chief way that Jesus wants His disciples to serve Him in this day and age is through the proclamation of the Gospel. This is why Jesus delays His judgment, even though He has received all authority from God to judge the earth through His resurrection from the dead. God desires all to come to repentance. This is why the Father is patient with the world and, and does not send His Son to destroy it, according to 2 Peter 3. He wants unbelievers to turn from their sins and be reconciled with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. And so He leaves the church here in the meantime, before the return of Christ, so that we might serve as ambassadors to this coming kingdom and implore the world on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. 
This is why Jesus has not called us home, even though He loves us with inexpressible love. He's not yet called us home, because although He loves us and wants to be with us, He still has this mission for us here, which is to proclaim the gospel of His kingdom until He returns. So, that's your mission in life. You are to advance the kingdom of God through the proclamation of His gospel. However, if you're like most Christians, you struggle with this mission. You hear these instructions from Christ, and you know that this is what Christ has called you to do, and you want to do it, but when you hear these words, you're almost instantly convicted by your failures to be faithful to actually do what Christ is commanding here. That's pretty normal. Many, probably fair to say most, most Christians struggle to be faithful here. And really, even those who are faithful are still often sensitive to the idea that there might be more that they could do to proclaim Jesus than what they're currently doing. I doubt very many believers at all truly feel adequate in this portion of their Christian walk. We can all improve in our faithfulness to proclaim Christ, but but how? How can we grow to be more faithful here? We have to be faithful to this mission. How are we to do that? And that's what we're going to discuss this morning after church. If you recall, I announced a couple of weeks ago that we're going to have a fellowship meal after church to discuss how we can work together for the sake of the gospel. That's really the purpose of this discussion. We're going to try to think together about how we can grow in our faithfulness to fulfill Christ's great commission. However, before we got there, I thought it would be good, a good idea to spend a couple of Sunday mornings thinking about what the Scripture says about the Great Commission in order to try to set the stage for that discussion. I started last week by preaching on the motivation of the evangelist from 2 Corinthians 4, 13 to 18. The problem that many of us have when it comes to evangelism is, is not in realizing that this is something that we ought to do. It's, it's having the motivation to do it. Evangelism is hard. It's uncomfortable. It requires telling people who don't know God that they need to repent of their sin and believe in Christ. The scriptures tell us that there are, there are a whole lot of people who won't be receptive to that message. Most will ignore it. Some will even be hostile to it. And that can make it very difficult to share the gospel. Again, it's uncomfortable. It's painful. So even though we know this is something we should do, we hesitate to do it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 13-18, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived, explains why he continued to proclaim Christ despite the hostility he faced in his ministry. So before we got into this discussion later today, I thought it would be a good idea to take a week to explore that passage and see what drove his ministry so that we, too, might be motivated to take on this incredibly challenging mission together. And that's where I'm hoping you are this morning. My hope is that after you've seen what motivates Paul in his ministry, after you've come to recognize just how important this mission is, you're now ready to face the challenges that it presents head on. Again, as we saw last week, there is no easy way out of the suffering that we will experience on behalf of Christ. But we must proclaim Him. And it is worthwhile to proclaim Him, even with all the obstacles we face in doing it. So we have to embrace this challenge head on. And hopefully that's where you're at this morning. You're Ready to talk about evangelism? I hope. You're ready to fight for the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom through the salvation of souls? So now the question becomes, how do we do this? 
Okay, we want to do this. How do we do this? How can we work together for the gospel? And that's what we'll talk about uh, over lunch after this service. But before we do that, I thought it'd be a good idea to deliver one more message to sort of provide a framework for this discussion. After all, when I ask this question, how can we work together for the sake of the gospel, that probably means like nine or ten different things to eight different people. It's a broad question. And it's made even broader by the different kinds of, ch- different kinds of, of church experiences that we've all had over the years. What I mean is that we all have our own ideas, we all have our own assumptions of what we think evangelism is or the Great Commission is, and so if we come together to tackle an issue like this together, it can very quickly kind of break down because we think we're talking about the same thing when we're not. It's almost like we're speaking a different language. We all have our own definitions of what evangelism or or a word like mission means. We have our own ideas of what it means to engage in these concepts biblically. And so when we get to talking with people about this and they disagree with us, or when they don't talk about the things that we think they should talk about, we're left trying to figure out why. The point is this discussion can get muddled very quickly. So what I want to do this morning is is cover a couple of key biblical concepts on evangelism, which I think will help establish a a, a common framework for us so that when we open up this discussion today, we're all talking about the same thing with the same set of rules. Okay. Both of these concepts I want to talk about today are related to how we go about this mission. Again, we have a lot of different ideas about what it means to pursue this mission faithfully, depending on the the various church backgrounds that we've been exposed to. So what I want to do is just briefly ask, what does the Bible say about this mission? So that when we're working on this together, we're working with the same concepts when we discuss it. And and, and just so you know, this is really a, a bigger issue than I can sufficiently answer in the short amount of time that we have here this morning. So I'm only going to stick to two Concepts that I think are especially pertinent for our discussion this morning. The first concept relates to the definition of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus delivers the Great Commission. What is that? What is He telling His disciples to do when He gives them that command? I want to try to briefly define that so that we can get a sense of the big picture of what we're talking about when we talk about this mission together. And then second, I want to take that definition, and and with that in mind, I want us to ask ourselves, How does the Bible say that we should do this? And again, that's not something we can fully cover in one message. It's actually the purpose of our discussion, to sit down and collectively ask ourselves, how can we do this? But before we do that, uh, I just want to discuss one vitally important concept to what the Bible says about how this mission happens, so that when we come together for the discussion, we're on the same page. So, first mission... Then method. That's what we'll be talking about. Those are the two concepts we'll be discussing. The mission, of course, comes from the passage that we opened with today, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. The method, it'll come from a few different places, but the main passage we'll go to is Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. The first principle that I want us to take into consideration in this discussion later today is this. Principle number one, the Great Commission includes evangelistic outreach, but it is not exclusively evangelistic outreach. 
The Great Commission includes evangelistic outreach, but it is not exclusively evangelistic outreach. In other words, evangelism is part of the Great Commission, but it is not synonymous with the Great Commission. You see this in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So once again, Jesus is raised from the dead. He has received all authority from God to establish the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is truly imminent. There's really nothing else that must be fulfilled for Christ to judge the earth and institute this kingdom. He only waits for the word from the Father and He will do all that the Scripture said He would do. But at the same time, there's going to be this intermediary time of indeterminable length between the resurrection and the establishment of the kingdom, where, as Jesus explained uh, just a moment ago, just a few chapters ago, Matthew 13, there's going to be this period of time where the tares will be allowed to grow alongside the wheat. What is the disciples' mission during this period of time? What does Jesus want them to do until the end of the age? You see the answer right here with the Great Commission. But what is this mission? You see the answer in verse 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples. Okay, Make disciples. This is what Jesus wants His disciples to do. He wants them to make disciples. Just as He, just as he uh, called and discipled them, He replicated Himself in His disciples by teaching them and training them in the Word of God. Now He wants them to go and do the same thing. He wants them to keep replicating. He wants them to take what He taught them and then pass it on to others so that they might become like the disciples and becoming like Jesus. That's the basic command here. The Great Commission, in its essence, is about the making of disciples. And what does this include? What does it it mean to make disciples? You have two clauses here that modify this command and therefore explain what it means to make disciples. Disciples. The first comes in verse 19. Jesus wants His disciples to make disciples, quote, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is one part of this disciple-making process. Jesus wants His disciples to make disciples through baptism. Now what does that mean? Most essentially it means conversion. Baptism was, in and of itself, an expression of repentance. It was a ritual expression of uncleanness being washed away through the repentance and forgiveness of sins. The baptized were confessing their sinfulness as they turned away from their sin and committed to a new way of life. That's one thing that baptism meant. And yet it wasn't only this. Baptism was an act of identification as well. The person who was baptized was publicly declaring their new identity. They were once one way, but now everyone should recognize them differently because of the repentance that was being declared as they were baptized. So to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is to express, is to express one's repentance as they turn to faith in Jesus as the Christ. In short, the one who is baptized in this way declares that they worship God the Father, that they recognize the authority of His Son, Jesus, and have trusted in Him for salvation from their sins. 
And they do this through the power of the Holy Spirit who has made them alive to the gospel and now indwells them with, as a kind of down payment to their future inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. To be baptized in this way was to therefore reject one's former life of unbelief and rebellion against God and to declare to the world that from this day forward, the baptized should no longer be recognized for what they were, but now they should be known as a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So then, for Jesus to say to His disciples, make disciples by baptizing, He's essentially telling them to make converts. How then, how then is this going to occur? How will a person be converted to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it's through the proclamation of the gospel and with a call to repentance. Jesus' disciples go out as his ambassadors and they tell those who do not identify with Jesus, the unbaptized, they tell them about what Jesus has done and how they can be reconciled to God through Him, and they call them out to repent and believe in Christ, which is then expressed in their conversion with baptism in Jesus' name. This means that part of the Great Commission includes evangelism. If the disciples are to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, then they must make converts. And making converts means going out to those who have not heard the gospel and do not accept Christ, telling them who Jesus is and what He has done, and then calling on them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So this is one part of the Great Commission. Evangelism. But it's not the only part. The second part comes with the second clause that modifies this command, which occurs in verse 20. Jesus' disciples are to make disciples, quote, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is important. Jesus isn't just looking for mental assent. No, he's, again, he's looking for converts. He's looking for disciples. And this includes not only bringing a person to faith in Jesus Christ, it means not only bringing them to the point where they recognize and accept Jesus' authority and trust in His saving work at the cross, but it means actually teaching them to do all the things that Jesus commanded His disciples as well. It's like I said last week, Jesus died for all so that, 2 Corinthians 5.15, those who live... Might, not live, or might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died not just to release His people from punishment in hell. He died so that being freed from both the penalty, and again, not only the penalty, but also the power of sin, they might serve Him in adoration and worship. And this means that after converts are made, they are to be instructed to do all the things that Jesus commanded them. Obedience is not a prerequisite for salvation. A person is not saved by their works, but they are saved for works. And obedience should therefore follow their salvation. That's part of the Great Commission. The ongoing teaching of believers to grow in their faith in Christ, this is also part of the Great Commission. Like what's happening here right now? Me opening up the Scriptures, explaining to you what God's Word says, as I call on you to obey it, believe it or not, this is part of the Great Commission. Or to put it in theological terms, the Great Commission includes not only a believer's justification, but their sanctification as well. It isn't just one or the other. The Great Commission includes both. So that's one principle that we need to keep in mind as we talk about evangelism today. 
Now, why do I think this principle is something that we need to keep in mind as we do that, as we talk about evangelism? Well, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, this principle is important because it reminds us what it is that we're calling people to when we evangelize. We're not just calling them to mentally affirm a certain set of truths. We're calling them to discipleship. We're calling them to obedience. That obviously affects the content of our gospel presentation. After all, if this is true, then our presentation of the gospel is not only going to include words like trust and faith, but words like repentance as well. It will explain not only how we can be justified, but what we should do as a result of our justification. And it's not just the content that's affected, but our method is affected as well. It means that our goal is not simply to lead someone in a prayer where they ask Jesus into their heart. Don't get me wrong, it's certainly appropriate for a person to pray to God when they believe, but at the same time, that's not necessarily the goal, because again, repentance is what we're going for, not just mental affirmation. Prayer to God for forgiveness of sins is certainly an expression of repentance, but it's not the same thing as repentance. It's more than possible for someone to utter words of faith without repenting to faith in Christ. And that's the goal of evangelism, to create a disciple who trusts in Christ by faith. And of course, if this is part of the Great Commission, if, it, if we're trying to make disciples, then it means that whatever sort of outreach we do, that outreach needs to include some sort of way to plug people into a church body where they can grow in maturity to Christ. If we're handing out gospel tracts, maybe there's a phone number or an address of a church on the gospel tract, or if we're having a, a series of ongoing conversations about Christ with someone when they come to faith, then maybe we tell, we, we tell them that we'd be happy to start doing a Bible study with them. Probably we invite them to church. point is, we don't just say, believe in Jesus and then walk away. Because the goal is to make disciples. That means we need to, in some way, look after the believer's long-term growth in Christ when we evangelize. So this is one reason why this principle matters. It reminds us what we're calling people to do when we evangelize. It reminds us of the goal of evangelism. And this affects both the content and the way that we evangelize. The second reason why this principle is important is because it helps us understand whether or not we're being obedient to Christ's command. Quite clearly, the Great Commission is something the entire church is called to do. This is our present mission on the earth, to advance the kingdom of Christ through the making of disciples. But what does that mean? It's not just outreach, but the edification of the church as well. I don't know if you've ever noticed or not, but when I talk about the mission of the church, I'm very intentional in making sure that I don't say that the mission of the church is evangelism. Because evangelism isn't in and of itself is not the mission of the church. It's part of the mission of the church, but it's not the whole thing. The mission of the church is the Great Commission, which includes not only evangelism, but the ongoing discipleship process that follows a person's conversion as well. Like, like Paul didn't only evangelize, right? Paul was one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived, no doubt. And, and he saw that as his personal ministry. In fact, in Romans 15.20, he says, quote, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul was a missionary through and through. But Paul didn't just show up, preach the gospel, and leave. No, he planted churches. 
In some instances, he would even stay in a city for a few years, pastoring the church that he started. And not just that, but then after he left, if if he heard that one of the churches that he planted was struggling, he would write them letters to shepherd them in their faith, even from a great distance away. He would even send some of his co-workers, men like Timothy and Titus, to churches that he established to shepherd them. And he would even write these men and instruct them what they should do to lead these churches, telling them how to do things like appoint elders so that these churches could have permanent, ongoing leadership. Again, it's not only evangelism, but sanctification as well. So when we ask ourselves, are we being faithful to fulfill the Great Commission, then we have to consider the whole process that that entails. On one hand, this mission includes evangelism, and so whenever a believer asks themselves, am I being faithful to the Great Commission, then they need to ask themselves, am I working to see that Christ is proclaimed to the lost? But on the other hand, this mission also includes sanctification too. And so, if the believer is evaluating their faithfulness to this call, then they should also ask themselves, am I working to see that those who come to know Christ also learn and do everything that Jesus commanded them? They have to hit both sides of the mission. And and this is true not only of the individual believer, but but of churches as well. Many churches tend to fall, a lot of times, into either one or two of the uh, one of these two categories. They're either focused on evangelism and they're really great at that, but they don't really build up the body of Christ. Or they're focused on equipping and edification and they build up the, the body of Christ great, but they don't really evangelize the lost. And it really shouldn't be this way. Don't get me wrong, should the local church gather specifically for the purpose of equipping and edification? of believers, should the focus of church gatherings be the building up of the body of Christ? Yes, absolutely. Scripturally speaking, this is really the reason why the local church gathers. However, while it is true that the local church should gather for the purpose of equipping and edification, at the same time, that equipping and edification should be taking place for the purpose of evangelism and outreach. In other words, the church is built up so that it can then be sent out. So it really shouldn't be one or the other. If a body of believers are being faithful to Christ's great commission, then they need to be pursuing both aspects of this mission. This is one principle that we need to keep in mind today. The great commission includes evangelism, but it is not exclusively evangelism. Let's look now at the second principle. The second principle is this. I'll say this a couple times because this one's a mouthful. Everyone's role in this mission will have a different point of emphasis depending on the calling and equipping they have received in Christ. Let me repeat that again. Everyone's role in this mission will have a different point of emphasis, depending on the calling and equipping they have received in Christ. There are a few different passages that we could go to to develop this point, but I think the best one is Ephesians 4, 11-16. So if you would, please turn there. Ephesians 4, 11-16. I have to tell you, Ephesians 4, 11-16 is a verse that has impacted my life like very few others. It doesn't deal exclusively with the entire Great Commission per se. Rather, it deals more with the second half of this mission, the building up of the body of Christ. It essentially explains the mechanism that God uses for the building up of His church. But I think if we pay attention to Paul's point here, then we can make some pretty simple, logical deductions that inform us how the first half of this mission works as well. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. 
Ephesians 4, 11-16, Paul says this, And He, that is Christ, he's talking about Christ there, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what do these verses mean? I said this passage explains the mechanism that God uses for building the church. What is that mechanism? We see it in verses 15 to 16. Paul says this. He says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul says that we are to grow up into every way, into Him who is the head, into Jesus Christ. How? First half of verse 15. We do this as we speak the truth in love. So it's the truth that grows the body of Christ, and specifically it's the truth as it is administered in love. The body of Christ feeds, it matures, and grows as our minds are renewed through the teaching of the Scripture. And this works because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. So, 1 Corinthians 2, as we hear the truth, the Spirit convicts us of this truth, and being convicted, our minds are renewed and we grow and think and act more like Jesus Christ. So the body grows as the truth is spoken. That's the means of our growth. But what's the mechanism? Verse 16, we grow into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So as the first two words of this verse indicate, this growth is from Christ. We don't do this on our own. Jesus causes this to happen. But the mechanism of this growth is the body itself. The whole body makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body does this. It builds itself up. And now look at the two, these, these two phrases kind of inserted into the middle of this statement. This is key. The, the body makes itself grow, quote, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. In other words, just like a human body, the body of Christ, the church, is made up of different individual parts, each of which has its own unique role to play in the body. And it's as these parts work together, as they work cooperatively, when they're functioning properly, meaning that they're active and they're doing their job, when that happens, the body builds itself up in love. So this is at least part of how the teaching them to do all that I commanded you, how that portion of this mission happens. The body of Christ learns about Jesus as they grow in His image through the speaking of the truth in love, but this speaking in truth is a collective process. In other words, my growth in Christ, your growth in Christ, this doesn't just happen as one or two people speak the truth into our lives. Rather, this happens as many different people do this. 
And conversely, I'm not to think that it is someone else's job to apply the Scriptures to the lives of my fellow believers. No, this is everyone's job. Everyone is to be engaged in this discipleship process. Again, with every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. It's a collective effort. This is a group effort. Now, this isn't to say that everyone plays the exact same role in this truth-speaking process. If you look back, starting in verse 11... Paul says this, going through verse 14. He says, And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up uh, the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So, for instance, there is a role for teachers in the church. Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That is to say, He has given men who are able to explain and apply the Scripture to the church. But verse 12, He has given these men to the church in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Until, through this truth-speaking process, we all attain maturity in Christ. So again, it is the church interacting with one another that builds up the body, but there are various leaders given to the church and different types of leaders, you will note, whose role it is to explain and apply the Word of God to the body so that the body can then be equipped to use the Word as they minister to one another and build one another up in love. So what we can see here is that this is a collective process. Everyone is involved in the building up of the body of Christ, and yet not everyone's going to do the exact same thing in this process. Clearly, there are different types of leaders. Some are apostles who came as official messengers of the kingdom of heaven. Others are prophets, which means that they receive direct revelation from God and then reveal that to the congregation. Some are teachers who explain the meaning of of the prophets' revelations. Some are shepherds who nurture and oversee the growth of the members of the church. And some are evangelists who make it their business to advance the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers. They all lead and equip the church, but not in the same way. And this same truth is applied within the rest of the body of Christ as well, not just the leadership. We're all engaged in this building up process, but we don't all do it the exact same way. Paul outlines this point in great detail in 1 Corinthians 12. If you would, go ahead and flip over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul outlines this point in great detail in this chapter. If you would, please, again, look there. When Paul writes this chapter, there's this division Uh, taking place in the Corinthian church. In particular, the Corinthians had become boastful, and in their pride they were trying to claim that they were superior to one another. People were saying, I'm a better Christian than you are because of this thing or that thing. And, And Paul rebukes this behavior. And as he tries to explain how contrary this kind of thinking is to the body of Christ, he says this, look at verses 4, uh, 4 through 12. He says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but there is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is, uh, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, 
who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. We all have unique gifts, Paul says, which will be employed differently for the common good. Just as one body has many parts, all with unique functions, so it is with the body of Christ. And the result of this concept, of course, is that there should be no boasting. There should be no competing in the body of Christ. As Paul says in verses 14 to 20, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the bo- in the body, each one of them as he chose. If we are uh, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So one has the gift of teaching and the other doesn't. Does that mean that the one gifted at teaching is a better Christian than the other? No. It means that they play a different role. One is serving the body as an eye, the other is serving as a foot. And neither are sufficient to fulfill the task that Christ has given us on our own. The eye plays an important role in the life of the body, sure, but it still needs the foot to move it from one location to another. One's not better than the other. They're just playing different roles in this collective work of growth so that the body, that the body is accomplishing together. So stop boasting. It's stupid. That's Paul's point with all of this. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because these passages show us that the work that Christ has given us is a collective effort. And not only that, but we're going to play different roles in this effort as well. The Great Commission process is this spectrum where a person goes from unbelief to belief and from belief to maturity in Christ. And within that spectrum, there are various types of people that will play a unique role in that person's sanctification as they grow in Christ. I can look back on my life, of Christ, my life in Christ And there were multiple people who helped plant the gospel seed in my life over a number of years before it bore any fruit. And there was someone else who got to reap the fruit of that seed. I don't even know her anymore. We're not friends. I haven't talked to her in a number of years. She's different from the pastors and teachers that taught me theology and gave me a basic awareness of what being a Christian actually looked like. And they were different still from the friends who encouraged me in my faith as I struggled to do the things I learned. And both of them were even different from the seminary professors who refined my theology and prepared me to serve in full-time ministry. The girl who, you know, quote, led me to Christ, she could have never prepared me for ministry. After all, it takes years of intense study and theological training to prepare a person for something like that. And conversely, my seminary professors who equipped me for ministry could not have led me to Christ. I mean, if they had known me, they could have. Don't get me wrong. But they didn't know me. And why not? Well, it's because they were halfway around the country reading theology papers and preparing other pastors to go into the ministry. What I needed at that time was someone who could sit with a spiritually deceived college student at 11 o'clock at night in an IHOP and tell him about repentance. 
The man who would teach me Greek couldn't do that for me. But a Cracker Barrel waitress could. Can you see where I'm getting at here? There are many different parts of a Christian's growth in Christ, and no one person is sufficient to handle each of these parts on their own. Every stage of Christian development and every aspect of Christian growth requires a different set of resources or a different set of skills that no single person is able to supply on their own. And this means that when we look at this Great Commission, we should really understand that this is a group effort. I don't go around and do the Great Commission. You don't go around and do the Great Commission. No, we do it together. We advance the kingdom of heaven as a team. So what do we take away from this point? Everyone's role in this mission will have a different point of emphasis depending on the calling and equipping you've received in Christ. What are the implications of that thought? I think the main implication is this. No one is absolved from either part of the Great Commission process. No one's absolved from either part. Again, we're called to be faithful to this mission, and we can't really say that we're doing that if we're only doing half of what Jesus asked us to do. In other words, I'm a pastor, which means that my role primarily is to shepherd the body of Christ. That puts me pretty strongly on the teaching them to do all that I commanded you side of the Great Commission. My literal job is to nurture the growth of the members of this local body. So most of what I do is going to be on the sanctification end of that spectrum. But if that's all I ever do, if all I ever do is try to mature believers, then I can't really say I'm being faithful to this mission. After all, I would only be doing the second half of this command, and that's not what Jesus has called me to do. I'm not only to teach his disciples to do all that he commanded them, but I'm to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit as well. I'm to make converts. So even though I'm a pastor, that doesn't mean that I'm absolved from outreach. And that works the other way too. Back in Ephesians 4, Paul said that evangelists were given, note here, evangelists were given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So even men who are especially gifted at evangelism, they don't only evangelize. They're called to edify and grow the body of Christ too. Their ability in evangelism, for instance, becomes a precious resource in the church because we're all called, right, to do this portion of the Great Commission. We're all called to evangelize, but not all of us are going to do it as as well as a man who possesses that office in the church. The evangelist, therefore, needs to be involved in the church, training and equipping, perhaps encouraging, perhaps even leading the body of Christ to evangelize. He, too, needs to be engaged in sanctifying the church, just as the pastor needs to be engaged in outreach. So no one is absolved from any portion of this Great Commission process. That's one thing to kind of take away from this. And yet, at the same time, I think it's reasonable to assume that some will be engaged on one end of the spectrum more than the other. My seminary professors evangelize. But if you did the math and you figured out how much of their time was spent evangelizing compared with how much time they spent reading academic papers or teaching class or grading, I think you'd find they spent significantly more time edifying believers. And not just believers, but but edifying pastors, actually, specifically. They spent more time doing that than they did evangelizing unbelievers. And that's not wrong. 
After all, there are very few men with the skills to serve the church in the way that they serve the church. And so, while they're not absolved from this other aspect of the Great Commission, this doesn't mean that they're being unfaithful to the Great Commission either when they focus their time and attention on the thing that they're skilled at. They know their role within the body of Christ, and they're being faithful to be a good steward of the natural talents and spiritual gifts that Christ has given them by wholeheartedly applying themselves to that role. So they spend some time with unbelievers... But they also spend a lot of their time hanging out with future pastors. Pastors who will then eventually go and equip their churches with the Word of God so that being equipped, the believing Cracker Barrel waitresses of the world can sit in IHOPs with spiritually deceived college students and lead them to Christ. Again, we're doing this as a team. The church is God's evangelistic program. We are His official mission organization. Just as a a mission organization is going to be occupied with different people, with unique roles who work together for the sake of advancing the kingdom of heaven, so it is with the church. Personally, I like to to think of the church kind of like a football team. This probably won't make sense if you know football, or if you don't know football, but I like to think of the church kind of like a football team. On a football team, you have a quarterback, who's really good at passing the football. Not a great runner necessarily, but he's good at passing the football. And then you have running backs who are fast, and they're great at eluding tacklers. They may not have the best hands, they may not catch well, they're not big, they can't block, they can't throw, but you hand them a ball, and they can get through the line and run the ball downfield. You have wide receivers who can jump high, and they're great at catching footballs. And then you have 300-pound blockers who protect the quarterback and give him time to throw to the receiver, or they open up holes for the running back to run through. Now, these are all different types of players with unique skill sets designed for a particular job on the field. And I mean, rarely can one player from one position jump to another position and do it well, even though sometimes they might be called on to do that. And yet, as different as they are, together they move the ball down the field. That's what's happening in the church as well. We're all occupying unique roles as we work together to advance the kingdom of God. So this is our second principle. Our first principle is that the Great Commission includes evangelism, but it is not exclusively evangelism. And the second is that everyone's role in this mission will have a different point of emphasis depending on the calling and equipping that they've received in Christ. Now, before we wrap up, let me give you just four brief points of application based on these principles to kind of help set up today's discussion. So hopefully you can start to see where this is going, but let me give you four more points of application that will kind of help, I think, set up this discussion. The first point of application is this. Know where your role is in the Great Commission and exert yourself in it. That's the first way you respond to these principles. Know your role in the Great Commission and then exert yourself in it. Every Christian is to be called to the faithful to this mission. In fact, again, this mission is really the purpose of the Christian life. Every single one of us has been called to spend our lives for the advancement of Christ's kingdom to the glory of His name. And yet, not everyone is called to do this in the same way. Some are called to serve as leaders. Others, most even, are called simply to do the work of the ministry. Some will perform their ministry publicly, perhaps in some sort of teaching role. Many others, again, probably most, really, will minister privately in more of a one-on-one setting. Some will primarily serve the church, working on the second half of the Great Commission. Others will focus the bulk of their ministry outside the church as they seek to make converts. 
There's a lot of work to do in the church. The Great Commission is a very involved process. The problem is that each one of us is limited by time and resources to do it all. We simply cannot do everything that's necessary to fulfill this mission. But that's okay. Because together, we can do it. So don't feel like you have to excel at every aspect of this mission. Just find out at least what you do well and then apply yourself at it. That's the first application. Application number two. Don't despise other Christians' gifts and roles. Don't despise other Christians' gifts and roles. It's very easy in life to become so involved in the things that we're passionate about that we begin to think that everyone else is being disobedient if they're not exerting themselves at the one or two things that we think are important. Make sure that you don't bring that attitude into the church. There should be one thing that we should all be able to agree, to agree is the greatest priority in our life. That's the Great Commission. That's just true. That's true of every Christian. That is the most important thing in your life, the advancement of the Great Commission. That's your primary calling for every one of us. But that being said, we must understand that there are many ways that we can be active in fulfilling this mission. Again, when I say that your primary calling in life is the Great Commission, don't confuse that to mean that I'm saying that you need to sell all your things and become a missionary or you're not being faithful to Christ. As we saw last week, Paul understood that to be his calling. He was a missionary. And yet at the same time, he could look at the Corinthians who stayed at home in their city and sent financial aid to the Jewish Christians in Israel, and he could say that they were partners together for the same work. We need to bring this same attitude to our body. Some of you, for instance, are stay-at-home moms. This means that your children are your primary mission field, and that's okay. Now, they probably shouldn't be your only mission field, but still, there's nothing wrong with them being your primary focus. That's Great Commission work. Some of you may spend a lot of time outside of work, engaged in some kind of hobby. Again, that's fine. But ask yourself, how can I use this interest interest for the advancement of the gospel? You don't have to give up your interest so that you can spend all your time at church or reading Christian books or something like that. Believe it or not, I actually wouldn't want you to do that. Those interests, that, that personality that God has given you, that is the doorway to a community of people that I could probably never reach with the same effect. So do your hobby. But if you do it, do it with an eye towards the Great Commission. Get to know others that do that thing too. Develop relationships with them and share Christ with them. Some of you may be more directly geared towards some aspect of Christian ministry. Like you're you're like directly Christian ministry. That's what you're focused on. I'm interested in biblical counseling. You might be motivated in Christian love to engage various social or cultural issues. Someone else might be driven to perform cold evangelism. And that's great. This is all great commission work and it's worthy of our attention. So maybe you're a leader and you want to encourage others to do these things. Get involved in them. Do it. And yet at the same time, understand that if someone declines your offer to partner with you for ministry, that's okay. You're not necessarily being disobedient. They may just be fighting the battle on a different portion of the field. That's the second application. Application number three. Apply yourself at the work of personal evangelism. Apply yourself at the work of, a per, of personal evangelism. Okay, so I've, I've laid out this idea that the Great Commission is spread across this really wide spectrum, and, and a person can be faithful to this call doing a number of different things. Like, not everyone has to become a missionary to be serious about the Great Commission. And that's all fine and great. But please don't take this to mean that I'm saying you don't need to evangelize. 
All that I've said, this isn't an excuse not to evangelize. It may see ease some of the stress or the false guilt that you feel over the Great Commission, but it's not an excuse not to evangelize. You still need to do that, and you need to do it personally. Others may focus more intensely on evangelism and carry the, that, and carry the bulk of that kind of work in the church, but you can't just delegate this off to other people. You have to be engaged in it as well. Again, there, there are two halves to the Great Commission. So for a believer to be faithful to this mission, then you have to be involved in both halves. That means everyone, everyone should evangelize. Okay, so maybe you're not an evangelist in terms of gifting. Maybe you're not going to spend a huge portion of your time knocking on doors and handing out tracts. You still need to be intentional in considering how you will reach people you've never reached with the gospel. If you lack gifts in this area, you still need to be thinking actively about how you're going to pursue this portion of your Christian life. You have a unique sphere of influence in your life that no one else can touch. You have family members, friends, co-workers who will listen to you in a way that they won't listen to the rest of us. You need to be thinking about how you're going to share Christ with them. And and not only that, but you need to be thinking about how you're going to expand that sphere of influence beyond the one you have right now as well. Maybe that won't happen by knocking on doors. That's okay, but it should be happening somewhere. Maybe that means going to the same restaurant frequently and getting to know the waitress there really well. Maybe that means volunteering somewhere and building relationships with the people there. If you're one of those extroverted types, and maybe this means keeping your eyes open for conversations that spring up with the random people that you meet. Whatever it means, you, you have to be thinking this way. Again, we, the time is urgent, right? We have to compel them to come in. We can't waste time. So you have to be thinking about, how am I going to expand this sphere of influence? And by the way, as much as I've talked about how it's okay to use our strengths to pursue our unique roles in the body of Christ, I think I need to be clear on this point. That idea is not an excuse to neglect your weaknesses either. I said Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 has had a huge impact on my life, and it has. My, my life and my ministry has been built around the principles found in that passage, meaning that I've tried to work to, to magnify my strengths, invest in those things uh, for the Great Commission so that those qualities can be most effective. But at the same time, I know that I have weaknesses that prevent me from being effective in other aspects of this mission that I still need to do. So I've made it my business to, as much as possible, wage war on those weaknesses that I might become a more effective ambassador of Christ. And and, and while those weaknesses might never become strengths, I think my wife could tell you that right now, I'm light years ahead of where I used to be in those areas. So don't think I'm saying coddle your weaknesses. I'm not saying coddle your weaknesses. No, kill them. Put them to death. Be sanctified. After all, again, the time is short, right? So stretch yourself by Christ through the power of the Spirit. Become better. Grow. Okay? That's application number three. Apply yourself at personal evangelism. Lastly, number four. Consider pursuing evangelism cooperatively. Consider pursuing evangelism cooperatively. So maybe you're stronger on the sanctification side of the Great Commission. Maybe evangelism is hard for you for whatever reason. You know, maybe, maybe you're kind of you're introverted. You have a hard time talking with people you don't know. Uh, maybe you have a hard time with your words. You, you can talk with people you don't know, but you just, 
you can't articulate theology well, you can't explain Christ to them well, you know, whatever reason, maybe you just struggle with that part of this mission. Well, if that's the case, then think how you might be able to partner with someone who is good at those things that you're weak at. And then use your gifts together for the purpose of evangelism. You know, it's interesting. In the opening chapter of Acts, Peter and John are often together. And yet you don't ever see John speak. Maybe in one instance, but it's him with Peter, even when it is the case. Peter gives several sermons. And we don't have a record of, of one of John's that he preached, any sermon that John preached, if he preached one. It's apparent that John was doing something, and yet he wasn't the mouthpiece of that ministry in the same way that Peter was. And you can make the same observation with Paul and Barnabas, or even with Moses and Aaron long before that. It's not uncommon in the Scripture to find men with complementary gifts working in pairs, with one of the two perhaps being the lead speaker. If you struggle with a set of weaknesses that makes it difficult to evangelize, try to compensate for those weaknesses by teaming up with someone who's gifted differently. Again, this is the beauty of the body of Christ. Individually, we're weak, but together, we're very strong. And and by the way, don't just look at this in relation to your weaknesses, but even do it in relation to your strengths as well. Consider how you might be able to complement someone else's ministry. Some people are natural leaders. Meaning they get active, they get engaged, and they start, you know, hey, follow me, i got something I want to do here. And they, they start pulling people along. If you're not one of those people, then look around at someone who's leading, who's active in the work of the ministry, and then say to yourself, how can I be an asset to them? I've always been passionate about the, the importance of good theology in the church, but I didn't always know theology very well. And I, and I, I didn't really know how to teach either. So when I was at my home church in Nashville, I, I tried to make it my mission to be my pastor's fullback. Which, if you again, that's football terminology. The fullback goes in front of the running back to open up a hole. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be my pastor's fullback. I, I couldn't run the ball like they could, but maybe I could serve the church by blocking for them, so to speak, so that they could have more time to teach. I thought, I don't know how to equip the church, but this guy does, so how can I take as much off of his plate so he can do more of that? And by the way, I ended up learning a lot of good theology and how to teach in that process. This is called discipleship, by the way. So maybe take that same approach. Ask yourself, how can I be a support to someone else as they proclaim Christ? Or minister to the church? Or fill in the blank, whatever it is they're doing. Ask yourself that question as well. So that's our fourth point. Consider how to pursue personal evangelism cooperatively. And so there you have it. There are a couple of principles along with four applications that should provide a framework for our discussion this morning. Now we're kind of ready to get started, I think. And now the question becomes, with these principles in mind, how can we work together for the sake of the gospel? And that's what we'll talk about over lunch. I would encourage you all to be there with us as we do that together. We have some pizza uh, and some other, some like, well, lunch. We have lunch, okay? So we would encourage you to be there, part of that, as we do that together. Let's go ahead and close our time. Uh, by praying for that discussion together. Let's pray.